bow with me to a word of prayer. Once again, Lord, we come before you and we open our hearts and our minds to what you would have for us. Prepare our hearts to receive exactly the things that you have prepared for us in your word and may they penetrate our hearts and our minds that we might be obedient children of yours. For the sake of your great name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John's Gospel, we find ourselves in John 15, and we are returning to our study of what I've entitled the series all the way from a few chapters ago, the final instructions of the Lord Jesus Christ to a saved people. And what I mean by that is the final instructions Jesus is giving to those who are his disciples. He is with them now. This is his final moments, really, on the earth uh, before he goes to Calvary, dying for the sins of people. And he's giving some final instructions to his saved ones, the disciples. And I've been thinking continually over the last few weeks about this passage before us tonight. And I've been having a difficult time really getting past the implications of just the first few words of John chapter 15. I want to begin tonight by reading for us verses 1 to 11 and then just begin to dive into it a little bit as we think through what Jesus is saying. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every one that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you to abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be made full. I want us to take a moment tonight, at least in our own minds, and place ourselves in the shoes as best we can, in the shoes of these men who are hearing what is said in these verses for the first time. Remember, they have left everything, at least on a physical plane, to follow Jesus Christ. Their lives, for all intent and purposes, has been turned upside down. 
It is not like it was before for them in their physical life. They have been ridiculed. They have been laughed at by the crowds. They have been accused of association with a blasphemer whom they are now labeling Jesus Christ as. They have had days of fear. They have had days of wonder at what Jesus Christ was doing. They have been actually sold out by one of their very own, even though they don't realize it yet. The very one that they have relied on for the last three years is now telling them that he is leaving. I wonder if I was sitting in that group, the kind of blow that would be to my morale. What blow it would be to the thoughts of my future. How was I going to get through this? Where was I going to find the strength to just keep going? I think we've all been there in some sense in our own lives, maybe not to the extent that these men were right then, but we've all been there. We've all been at what we would call the end of our rope. We like to use that terminology. No answers in sight. We don't seem to be getting any answers from God. All of this is going on in the moment, in the background, in the hearts and minds, I think, of these people upon the departure from the upper room. As Jesus, they had just had supper, and now they're leaving the upper room. And Jesus begins, as he often has done with them, as he is walking with them, he begins to teach them through a metaphor. A metaphor, a picture from just the surroundings and the agrarian society in which they lived. And as normal, he uses that metaphor to impress upon them some spiritual implications. He's done this before. He had recently said, I am the way. John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John chapter 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. Just a few verses before that, in John chapter 10, he says, I am the door. In other words, through all of those statements, I am, Jesus is saying, exclusive. There is no one like me. There is no one that is an exclusive way. There is no one that is the exclusive shepherd except me. There is no one that the is the exclusive way into the sheepfold of the kingdom of God. There is no other way to enter. Back in chapter 8, he said, I am the light of the world. And he says that as he stands in the place where the huge lanterns were on the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, as they had lit those lanterns and they were lighting up the whole place, and the whole place would have been lit up like it had floodlights pouring in on it. Jesus stands there and declares, I'm the light. I am the exclusive light. I am the exclusive one who shines true light upon all men. He's the one who exposes the darkness of the heart. Back in chapter 6 and verse 35, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. He told all the people who were following after he fed the 5,000 who went across the lake the next morning. They wanted to be fed again. Jesus says, you're after the wrong thing. I'm the bread of life. I'm the sustainer of the life that matters. I am the one who sustains spiritual life, the only life that really matters. 
And now we come to chapter 15, and he begins with similar words. He says, I am the vine. I am the true vine. Again, the emphasis is on exclusivity. And it's the illustration of spiritual truth from a metaphor, and the metaphor is used from the grapevine, the cultivation of a plant. Now, on the surface, by way of just the nature of it, we understand that the vine is the source. The vine is the source for whatever comes from the vine, by which any life is derived from the branches where the fruit is produced. The vine is the source, the the place where the juice flows. In other words, for the branch to be alive and for the branch to be a fruit-bearing branch, it must be connected in every way with the vine. And, of course, all of that makes sense to us. We can just look out in our yards, we can look in our gardens, we can look at the trees and we can see a dead branch and we know that that branch somehow, in some way, even though we cannot see the insides of it, we know that some way if there's leaves on the other part of the tree and yet that branch isn't producing leaves, somewhere there's a disconnect with the vine. There's a disconnect in there. So if a branch is not connected to the vine, there is no way that it will produce fruit. So why then... Does Christ say in verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away? And then again in verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch. These are confusing words. It's clear to us just from reading the text at a cursory level that those who are Christians are the fruit-bearing branches. Those who are true Christians are the ones who are fruit-bearing branches. But who then are the non-fruit-bearing branches? And what is it that Jesus is teaching us? What is it he's teaching his disciples in this passage. In order for us to answer those questions, I want us to break this text down under an outline. And I'll just give you the the outline for us as we're going to walk through this text over the next several times we're in it. First, I want us to think about this first idea, who are the players in this text? In other words, who are the categories of people who are involved in this illustration? That's the first heading you might have. I I list it as the players. Who are the players? The second one is what is the ultimate purpose for the participants in this? Or what are the ultimate purpose for the players? Third, what is the process by which that goal is met? What is the process by which that goal is met? is met. So we have players, we have a purpose, we have a process. Fourth, what does the product being produced actually look like? What does the product being produced actually look like? And then fifth, I didn't know another P word. What is the effect? What is the effect 
of this in the players' lives. There's the effect. Players, purpose, process, product, and effect. That's the little five-point outline that I just want us to have in our minds to help us hang our thoughts on. Let's begin then to answer our first question. Who are the players in this illustration? Verses 1 and 2 begin to answer that question for us, and it's rather obvious in many ways. In light of these verses, we cannot forget to look at them from the perspective of the context, as we always often say, the context is king. And we notice that Jesus says in verse 1 and 2, I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser, every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch in me that bears fruit he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. So it's fairly self-explanatory for us that there are four different players in the illustration here. There is the vine, and we know who that is. It's rather clear in the first phrase of verse 1. I am the true vine. Jesus is speaking of himself. He is the vine in this metaphor. We don't have much trouble with that. And then... We learn quickly who the vine dresser is, and here it is the Father. God the Father is the vine dresser. Verse 1 clears that up for us rather quickly. Every garden needs someone to cultivate it. Every garden needs someone to care for it. Uh, When it's overrun with weeds, if the plants in the garden are not cultivated, they will not accomplish their attended purpose, and therefore Christ, who is the vine, through which the vital nourishment flows, the Father is the one who cultivates the plant. This is the idea. You have another player, the last player in this illustration are the branches. So you have the vine, the vine dresser, and then you have the branches, and there are two kinds of branches. There are fruit-bearing branches. As I said earlier, those are Christians or Those are true followers of Christ because they are those who are fruit bearers. True Christians are fruit bearers, but there are also non-fruit bearing branches. And I believe that these represent those who may have attached themselves to the vine, but because they are not truly part of the vine, they bear no fruit. Here's why I say that. In the context of this passage, Jesus is dealing with his disciples, the 12 disciples who are following him. Judas hasn't fully been exposed yet, although Jesus has exposed him to to Judas. The rest haven't understood all of that yet. So he's speaking to his 12 disciples. It's as if Jesus is still there in the upper room, or at least in the minds and hearts of the 12 disciples. He thinks... At least there, he's talking to them. And so in his mind, he's completely aware of the Father's presence in the situation. Jesus knows that. In fact, he even said on occasion, I don't even speak on my own initiative. It's what I hear from the Father. That's what I speak. So Jesus is fully aware in the interaction between he and the Father. There's that intimate relationship always taking place. What the Father says, Jesus says. What you hear Jesus say is what the Father says. He has just told his disciples 
In chapter 14 and verse 9, I have been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? So Jesus is involved. The Father is intimately involved. That's the vine and the vine dresser are intimately involved. And the branches are his disciples. The branches are the followers of Christ. That's what a disciple is. And we know that there are true disciples and we know that there are false disciples. And of the twelve, there were both of those kinds. He knew all of them intimately. He knew their hearts. Even Jesus back in John chapter 2 knew the hearts of the people. In John chapter 2 verse 23 and 24, I believe it is, when the people were believing in him, it says Jesus wasn't believing in them because he knew the hearts of men. He didn't need anybody to tell them that. He knew their hearts and he knew that 11 of the disciples were true disciples. And also he knew that one of them was a betrayer. Judas was a false, non-fruit-bearing branch. The fruit-bearing branches were the other 11. The fruit-bearing branches are any true Christian. Non-fruit-bearing branches, that's Judas. But it's the same for all who claim to be disciples of Jesus Christ and yet are not bearing fruit. The reality is Jesus, Judas was never a real disciple. Judas was never a real disciple of Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said after he had washed the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. Jesus said to them in verse 10, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. He didn't mean all of you by way of individual person, not all of you is clean. He's saying as a collective group, you are clean, but not all of you. There is someone here that is not clean. And verse 11 of that same chapter is a commentary on verse 10. Because in verse 11 it says, For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So we know he's speaking of the collective group. We know he is speaking of Judas, who is not the clean one, even though the rest are clean. Judas was a false disciple. And so those words are a clear picture of what happens in a person's life when God draws them to himself and saves them by faith. The cleaning. That God cleans them. He cleanses them. He bathes them. He, he cleanses their sin-sick heart by faith in His Son so that now all they need is the daily washing, the, the daily cleansing of the dirt gathered upon their walk in this sin-sick world. They don't need that forgiveness that they found in Jesus Christ. That is complete. All they need now is the daily washing. That's what John says in 1 John that one of the first characteristics of a true Christian is continual confession. We use it as evangelistic uh, verse oftentimes, 1 John 1, 9, but that's not an evangelistic book per se. That is a book to show you exactly what the character of a Christian is like. 
1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to, con- to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's, that's the reality of our Christian life, continual confession. Regularly going before God and confessing our sins. So it's a vivid picture Jesus uses before these followers concerning the outwork of his love that we saw in chapter 13. It doesn't excuse sin. Love doesn't excuse sin at all. It's willing to go and deal with it, even though the washing of the water by the living word cleanses it. All true believers need, once they've been bathed in the blood of Christ, is to clean the daily dust of sin from their lives, continually confessing, going before God, not to gain life, not to gain salvation, but to remain consciously clean before God in relationship. That's the issue. Not not a salvation issue. It's a conscience issue. So if the sin is left, it can be damaging. It can be offensive to others. It will be offensive to others. These men were reclining at the table in John chapter 13 and arguing about who was going to wash the feet. Their feet would be an offense to one another for walking around in the dirty world. So it is of us. We have to remain current with God. Reflect upon Him what might be an offense. So that's what the eleven are going through. And Judas was not bathed. Judas was not clean. He wasn't a child of God's. And Jesus, God on earth, knew it. Jesus knew that. He knew he wasn't one of his. And the truly sad part is that Judas looked like the rest. The sad part about the whole deception of it all was that Judas looked just like the rest. For all intent and purposes, he looked like a real branch. It was interesting. He was trusted by the others. The others trusted him. In fact, they put him in charge of the money box. That's how trusted he was. He would have said that he was a vital part of the plant. He would have claimed that he was part of the group, that he was one of them, that he was in with them, that he was tight with them, that he was, in fact, a true follower of Jesus Christ. He would have claimed to be in the vine. But the proof was that he had no fruit. Claims are meaningless without fruit. The reality is that one thing happens to fruitless branches. They are removed. They are removed. Verse 2 clearly tells us that. Verse 6 clearly tells us that. So we cannot be confused as we look at this text. Judas did not lose his salvation. Judas never had it. Judas was never saved. Why do I say that? Because I, I know... You're going to find this when you read commentators. I was reading some commentators recently who tried to say that Judas had just lost his salvation because he did not bear fruit. In other words, Judas was a true Christian. He he was truly tied to the vine, but he lost his salvation because he didn't bear fruit. To say that is to go against the words of Christ when he says, 
in John chapter 10, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. John 10, 28. So how can someone lose their salvation if Jesus who saves us says no one will perish those whom I save? Nothing can snatch them out of my hand. That would include even you. Those who are true and genuine believers cannot lose their salvation. Judas could never have been saved. Even though he would have attached himself and said he was attached to the vine. So in chapter 15, true branches will not and cannot be cut off from the vine. All true believers, all true branches will bear fruit. This is a clear implication from this text. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, indicating they're not true branches, they're fake branches. They've attached themselves to the, to the vine, but they're not true. Every branch that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. You can't be a non-fruit-bearing branch and be a true Christian. Those that only appear to be a part of the vine and yet do not bear fruit in their lives, have never been part of the vine, and therefore will be removed. Let me put it in the simplest terms that I can. If Christ is living in you, truly, you will bear fruit. If Christ is truly living in us, we will bear fruit. If there is no fruit, You do not have Christ living in you. Now, that fruit may be almost imperceptibly visible, but true Christians will bear fruit. And even though if there is no fruit, rest assured, you do not have Christ living in you. And even though you may have attached yourself to the vine, you will one day be removed. That's a frightening thought. This is the problem with much of the evangelical church of our day. Jesus said, it is a narrow road, Matthew chapter 7. It is a narrow road and few there are that find it. I I fear that the road to heaven is a lot more narrow than we think. From every outward appearance, there are many that appear to be attached to the vine. There are many that call themselves Christians, many who go to church, many who give to the charities and to the church, many, many who have been baptized, so many that have had an emotional experience at one point in their life when someone told them about sin and Christ. So many, even like myself when I was a young child, could give the right answers about how someone needs to be saved, and yet I wasn't saved. So many like that that are claiming to be branches, and yet they're not. And they will be removed because they have no fruit. So these are the players in the metaphor. Christ is the vine. 
The Father is the vine dresser, and the branches are true and false disciples. And it is, secondly, the purpose or the goal of the keeper of the plants to produce fruit. That's the goal. This is the product. This is the purpose. Notice verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. Here's the purpose. He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Notice verse 4. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. The product, the, the produce, the goal is fruit bearing. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Once again, the, the product, the goal is to bear fruit. Verse 8, by this my Father, by this is my Father glorified that you may bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. If I was to ask us a question tonight, what is the goal of the vine dresser with the branches? You would answer very quickly, I hope, to bear fruit. His goal with us is that we be fruit bearers. Well, what is the fruit that the vine dresser desires to produce on the branches? Most of the time when we think about the question like that, we think of outward acts. We think of things on the external, things outside that we've been doing for Christ. We think of our service in the church, our activities within the spiritual realm. We think of our evangelism, our act of sharing the gospel with somebody. And all of those things are profitable And it's true that we can certainly think those things in that way as fruit. The Apostle Paul often spoke of having a harvest among those whom he was writing to. Paul was saying that's the the fruit of this, hopefully, is a, a great harvest of people. But that's not what Jesus is meaning here when he says fruit. To illustrate this, I want to go back to the Old Testament. I want to go back to Isaiah. So turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. In Isaiah chapter 5, there is a parable of a vineyard. And as we will find out as we look at this, The text shows that the vineyard here is the nation of Israel. Notice what he says beginning in verse 1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, this is the Lord talking, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. So uh, I'm singing about the vineyard of God. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. And he dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vines. And he built a tower in the middle of it, 
and he shewed out a wine vat in it. And then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it only produced worthless grapes. I want us to stop there for a moment. God chose the nation of Israel as his vineyard. And his desire was that it produce fruit. That was God's desire, to choose a people, not because they were worthy to be chosen, simply because of his mercy and grace to choose them. He chose them, and he cultivated them that they might produce fruit. He wanted good fruit, but it only produced bad fruit. And in verses 3 to 6, God asks what he is to do with this vineyard that he expected to produce good grapes, but it only produced worthless ones. Notice what he says. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, we know exactly who he's talking to. Judge between me and my vineyard. Jesus, I mean, this is so amazing. Through the prophet Isaiah, God is saying to Israel, his vineyard, okay, here's the situation. I planted a vineyard. You tell me who it is. You judge between me. What am I supposed to do with this? He's asking those whom he's going to judge what he's, was to do with them. Verse 4, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Rhetorical question by God. The answer to that question is obviously nothing. You've done everything for it. You're the best cultivator you could ever be. You're the best vine dresser you could ever be. You have cared for it in every way possible, in every perfect way possible. What more could you have done? The only answer is none. Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, then did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. And I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned, it will not be hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. Wow. I cultivated you, I called you, I, I, I cultivated you to, to produce for me. You did none of that. Here's my judgment upon you. God is indicting Israel. Are they going to blame him for their lack of good fruit? He's given them everything they needed, yet they produced bad fruit. Now, what was the bad fruit? Verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus, he looked for justice... But behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. God didn't look for outward acts. God wasn't looking for them to produce some kind of outward deeds of righteousness. He wasn't looking for things done in some kind of religious spiritual vacuum. He was seeking justice in them. they produced was violence. God was seeking in them a righteousness and all they produced was cries for those who were in distress. 
What God was seeking from them by way of fruit was inner qualities. Inner qualities that reflected Him. The vine dresser. And all that was produced was outward fabrications. And why was the fruit bad? Why was the fruit bad? Verse 24, Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away in the dust. Why? For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Oh, Israel was the vine of God for a time. The one through whom the life-giving message of God came to you and me. They were only a picture, really, of the true vine who would come. Jesus Christ. And the fruit that God, the vine dresser, wants to produce or is producing in all of those who are true branches are not primarily outward acts, not outward deeds, but rather inner character of the vine in those who are true branches. God is producing in His true branches the life of Christ. Go back to the Gospel of John. Every branch in me bears fruit. And he, that is the vine dresser, verse 2, prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. The word more fruit, that's the word increase. He, he does what is necessary so the fruit increases, so the inner character of the the vine is in us so that the, the fruit that comes out of us is the likeness of Christ in us. It is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit whom He has given to all of us who are His. What comes out of us when we are tied into the vine, the more fruit that it bears is the fruit of the Spirit. It's more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, more goodness, more faithfulness, more self-control. These qualities are not present in our life. Not in a perfect way, but in a way of continual desire, in a way of continual striving remaining, then we have to ask ourselves a very serious question and honestly face the truth that we may not be true branches. Turn over for a moment to Second Peter, a very frightening text, just to kind of help us Peter says in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, and I'll just 
I, I really want to focus in on verse 8, but i got to go back all the way to verse 2 just to kind of help us. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of our God and Lord and Jesus our Lord. So he's speaking to, once again, Christians, warning them, seeing that his divine power, verse 3, is granted to us, that's the Christian, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these... By these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Why? In order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust, having escaped that strong desire because you believe in Jesus Christ, you're partakers of the divine nature because now you have a true knowledge of him who called you by his own glory and excellence. Now, verse 5, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. See? Strive. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, love. Now, here's the frightening part. For, verse 8, if, first class condition, if these are yours and are increasing, same terminology as John 15, my Father cultivates so that your fruit might increase. If these are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because, verse 9, he who lacks these is blind, short-sighted, having forgotten purification from former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. You see, Peter's warning about the same thing. Life without fruit is a life to be questioned. A life that claims to be a branch and yet bears new fruit is a life to be questioned. If you're clean, if you're truly a believer, if you only need daily washing, you're a fruit bearer, and the Father prunes you that you might bear more fruit. If there is no fruit, you have something to fear. If we are true believers in the vine, then the life of the vine will be in us. We will be in some way, Christ-like. In some way. And ever-increasing. And it will be our desire to be more Christ-like. The sad part is it's entirely possible to be a branch like Judas. Outwardly, in the group, attached to Christ in our own way, we look good outwardly, 
but we never have the life of the vine inwardly. The fruit that the vine dresser looks for is the life of the vine in us. That's what he's producing in us. So Jesus will say in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Cannot. Unless it abides in the vine, so neither you, unless you abide in me. So the question is, what is the process that the vine dresser uses to get us there? What's the process? We know the players. We know the purpose. Players are the vine, the vine dresser, and the branches. The purpose is to bear fruit and to bear much fruit. So what is the process that the vine dresser uses to get us there? That we're going to save for next time. Otherwise, we'll be here till next week. So if you would, bow with me for a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful once again that we've had the opportunity to sit and hear from you. I trust we're not confused by these things. And Lord, if there be those here who have proclaimed you and yet have defined their outward activity as the only means by which they define their fruit, then I pray that they would evaluate their heart and see in which way in their heart they're like you. For out of the heart flows the wellsprings of life, And from the root comes the fruit. May our fruit be genuine fruit. May we not be deceived. Allow us to be like your Son, Jesus Christ, in every way as we abide in Him and you prune us. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.